Greetings from the Cosmic Horrors. The stars are right, allowing us to talk about our favorite subject for a brief time. Welcome to the pilot episode of 30 Minutes of H.P. Lovecraft. I'm your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executive of the Lovecraft Estate on Yagoth. Joined in by two from the material world, David Guppy, a professor of Miss Botanic University, and Richard Wilson, a chief supervisor of the 2002 English translation of the Necronomicon. Occasional denizens may from, from other realms may pop up. If you see Princess Cthulhu, do not draw her attention, no matter how sweet or innocent she may act. Since this is the pilot, I will begin at the beginning, the master scribe's early years, particularly his relationship with a particular person who played a major role in piloting his own life. Lovecraft was born August 20th, 1890, which would make him 103, 130 years old in 2020. He only lived 46 of those years on the earth. His birthplace was at 454 Angel Street, of all things, in Providence, Rhode Island, described as a big, rambling, three-story cut-board house with 15 rooms. The library consisted of 2,000 books, some of them centuries old. It was torn down in 1961. Lovecraft may have been born in the house on Angel Street, but he and his mother, Susie, didn't come to live there until he was three years old. His father, Winfrey Scott Lovecraft, a traveling salesman, suffered a psychotic episode at a Chicago hotel and was committed to the Butler Hospital in Providence. Winfrey died five years later to what is generally called General Pariza, a severe neuropsychiatric disorder usually associated with syphilis, an apparent job hazard associated with Lovecraft's father. H.P. Lovecraft grew up in this house where his overprotective mother pampered him. Lovecraft described his mother as touch me not, indicating that he didn't always have an affectionate relationship with her, and probably with her husband too. She may have possessed a Puritan view towards sex. Women in the New England era of this time usually knew nothing about intercourse until the day of their marriage and came to view it as a bestial act to be avoided at all cost, which may explain why Lovecraft was an only child and why she didn't contract syphilis. She may have passed on her beliefs onto her son. The house belonged to Whipple Van Buren Phillips, Lovecraft's grandfather, his mother's father. Whipple Van Buren Phillips was born 20 miles away in the township of Foster on November 22, 1833. He was an orphan when he was 13. His father was killed when his coattails were caught in the machinery of his corn grissing mill. How his mother died is not known, but she died in 1848, the same year as his father and sometime before him. In his 20s, Phillips moved to Dove Van, Illinois, a temperance town founded by Lovecraft's ancestors to work on an uncle's farm for at least a year. He married Robbie Azza Place, yes, Place, P-L-A-C-E, in 1856, and they sired five children, four of which survived into adulthood. In 1859, the Phillips moved back to Rhode Island to a place of macabre name, Coffin's Corner, which came from the Coffin's family who came from Nantucket to settle here. The town was created originally as a camp for the railroad company with its own intriguing name, Hartford, Providence, and Fishkill. Fishkill is a town in New York. The name comes from a corruption of how the Dutch pronounced fish stream. The railroad was vital to the farmers to send their produce and milk to Providence, and the camp boomed into a town. In the township of Coffin's Corner, Whipple Van Buren Phillips, I do love saying that name, became a successful businessman running a general store in a sawmill and dealing in real estate, buying up most of the land here. He must have felt that the town's name might scare away potential buyers. 
So he changed the name of the town to Green in honor of Nathaniel Green, a general in the American Revolution. As a prominent member of this town, Phillips served as a postmaster and state representative and founded the Free Ionic Lodge number 28, which still stands today and is called Whipple's Hall. He may even think how his father died because he invented a fringe trimming machine that he profited from. Whipple Van Buren was definitely a self-made man. When, it, when financial hardship hit him personally, he was able to recover and chose to leave Green to move to Providence. At this new location, his fabled home on 454 Angel Street was built. He engaged in many enterprises that went beyond Rhode Island, such as his land deals in Idaho, where he christened the name of Grand Duke. He was successful enough to travel to Europe and fell in love with Italy, bringing back many souvenirs for his home. He was described as a large, stout man with a big white Warris mustache. In 1889, he started a company to build a dam over the Brunu River, which may have been in the back of Lovecraft's mind when he wrote Color of Outer, Outer, Outer Space. The dam washed away the next year, but was rebuilt, which caused Phillips' company to collapse. This was a financial setback that he couldn't recover from. And this was the world that Lovecraft grew up in. His family raised him acting as if they were still affluent. Lovecraft grew up with the expectation, believing that he was the American equivalent of landed gentry. Whipple Van Buren Phillips is believed to be the basis for Mad Old Watley in the Dunwich Horror, which if you read the short story, would not be regarded as a flattering portrayal. But when Lovecraft spoke to his grandfather, it was always fondly. So we may not regard Dunwich Horror as being autobiographical, but instead Lovecraft using his family more as a template for the Watleys. But that will be a discussion for a future time. Much like old Watley, his grandfather encouraged him in certain kinds of learning. Only Phillips focused more on classical literature and English poetry rather than the dark arts, maybe. His grandfather did love weird and macabre fiction, such as the Gothic novels of Anne Ratcliffe. She was the author of The Mysteries of Udofo, an archetypical Gothic novel where a young woman loses her parents and must spend time in a gloomy castle. Edgar Allan Poe was influenced by her work and another novelist, Paul Fival, turned her into a vampire hunter in his City of Vampires, The Incredible Adventures of Miss Anne Radcliffe. Two other favorite authors of Grandfather Phillips were Matthew Gregory Lewis, the author of The Monk, about the corruption and downfall of the monk Ambrosio, by earthly and supernatural forces, and Charles Manchurian, whose Malmoth the Wanderer tells of a man who sold his soul to the devil. As a child, Lovecraft feared the dark. His grandfather taught him to overcome this phobia by taking him into unlit portions of the house. This desensitization succeeded so well that Lovecraft came to see the night as his time to be awake and move about. He became a haunter of the dark. We'll pause uh, looking at the shaping and molding of Lovecraft until, if the old gods wish, next month. For the rest of this pilot episode, Professor Guthrie and Mr. Wilson would discuss more current Lovecraftian affairs. I turn it all to you now. Okay. So, Richard, <laughs> you uh, translated the Necronomicon. Is that what I'm given to understand? Yeah, that's a, that's a work in progress. It's a very weighty tome. Uh, we've got a team of uh, translators working on it night and day. Gotcha. Um, well, I think we had talked about um, Lovecraft kind of in pop culture and where he came from and how he got to the prominence, I guess that you would call it, um, 
that he's sort of enjoying today. Um, what are your thoughts on on some of those things, like the uh, you know the beginnings of being basically an unknown writer, and then so, sort of almost kind of blowing up in the last few years with all these all movies and references and uh, TV shows and um, uh, just just all sorts of pretty much uh, every aspect of the media because you get so many uh, games you know about when you're talking about tabletop or video games or RPGs all that type of thing seem to yep. be pretty much inescapable really at this point uh, whole sections of there's almost like a Lovecraft uh, music subgenre really because I'm just going to bring up uh, when we're talking about influences not necessarily modern but say 60s 70s and 80s uh, you look at say like the work of Metallica uh, with a song very specifically Call of Cthulhu, you know, thing that should not be one that referenced, you know, specifically, you know, or even taking verbatim uh, words from Lovecraft stories and that type of thing. Um, and that was seen as kind of an anomaly, you know, I guess really at the time, but then now you've got whole sections of, say, bands, for instance, the great old ones, and <laughs> ones that are do nothing but every single song is something from the Cthulhu mythos or Lovecraft and that type of thing. Or if a bad matter even, uh, get my prop out for today. Uh, you can read oh, that. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. The Susian H.P. Lovecraft's Call of the Bulu for kids. So that's and even written in like the Seuss style, as far as it has the rhymey, sing-songy patterns and that type of thing, um, to it as well. But as far as I think that that what you saw with Lovecraft in terms of not being very well known in his time versus posthumously them having more of like a ripple effect where. Uh, same way that musicians and other writers had that same type of effect in terms of, oh, that would have been nice had their work been that popular when they were alive <laughs> for them. But then in the decades, it kind of snowballs. And that's what we've really kind of seen with them in terms of there was a lot of his influence in what would you consider like subculture, counterculture stuff, again, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, in music, in comics, in uh, novels, that type of thing. Right. Um, but even in then, you still had with mainstream writers, Stephen King, you know, noting Lovecraft is a big influence on a lot of his you know, work and that type of thing. But I would certainly agree with you, yeah, that he's kind of inescapable as far as people that don't know anything about the source material will have a Cthulhu bumper sticker or some kind of, you know, throwing some kind of meme around about that type of thing, just something they'll pick up through osmosis and over the internet, that type of thing. Right. Yeah, you can buy plushies of Cthulhu and... Yep all those other uh, unmentionable, unnameable gods and so on. Um, yeah, I, I, the, you were talking about the 60s. I mean, it's definitely been this slowly rising tide since I, the first time that I, like, uh, the first time I'd even heard of Lovecraft was, like I said to you guys last week, was um, in the Deities and Demigods. And I was oh, like, yeah. oh, well, that's really cool. You know, and I, I started figuring out, you know, where that, you know, where to find those stories which was not easy to do back in like 1983. In the pre-internet where you had to actually dig to find the right. information. <laughs> there was the high school library, there was nothing there. Um, I don't think there was much, if anything, in the in some of the local towns in their libraries. But yeah, there was, um, it was definitely, a, it's definitely been an interesting thing to watch, especially being someone who's always read, uh, read Lovecraft and sort of done, even in college, I wrote a couple of papers about you know, Lovecraft and Poe and some things like that. Um, and then seeing those, those exact same things slowly become more and more um, ingrained in some of the current, uh, like I said, movies, TV shows, all of those things. And we were that sort of like the nerds of one and here, 
Lovecraft is here, even if people don't know it, you know, they're, they're, they're enjoying that stuff. Yeah, it seems as far as, yeah, certain, anything from like comic books, sort of, this, that, and the other, all starts having kind of their moment in, you know, mainstream popularity, that type of thing, and it certainly would agree that, you know, at this point, it seemed to be, you know, almost like saturation level. I wouldn't know how much more Lovecraft you could get than current levels of, you know, kind of oh, yeah. saturating, as you said, like music, games, movies, that type of thing, in terms of everything now feeling the need to have some type of nod to the, you know, Lovecraft's mythos, you know, in some manner or another. Right. Even working into things where it doesn't really seem to belong. <laughs> Well, we're, um, I don't know, I made some notes about things, you know, as far as him being obscure, but he was um, critically reviewed by the, the uh, Edmund Wilson, who was a, who was a sort of a famous crit critic of literature back in the 40s. Um, and he said that the only horror he saw was the horror of, uh, <laughs> the horror that were the stories that Lovecraft wrote, they were so bad, basically. Um, but he, he did like his, um, um, Oh, what is it called? The um, supernatural, supernatural horror in fiction or in literature. He did like that. He thought that Lovecraft was actually a very good uh, critic in his own in his own right. Um, and uh, as I was, I found today that evidently he had. Um, I didn't know that. I'd never read this before. But Edmund Wilson had written a play, and he references Lovecraft in the play. And when um, L. Sprague de Camp say, hey, what's going on with that? He said, well, I've been reading all of Lovecraft's letters and I think he had revised some of his opinions of uh, maybe some of the works of Lovecraft by that time. So um, he sort oh, of grew he, on people. Right, where he turned his, his opinion around. I noticed some of that as well, because I'd read, yes, some of the, there were people that were initially critical as far as that then that kind of opinion would then kind of soften over time as far as, okay, you know, I've or more of almost kind of like a mixed uh, opinion of him saying when he's very good, he's very good. But then these, when he's bad, you know, then it's, you know, he's very bad. And those right. things, as far as ones that they think of his work that they found that, you know, were very well done versus other ones that were, oh, you know, this is a big miss, that type of thing. Um, right. And that seems to almost like permeate a lot of the criticism there as far as the, 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 uh, with his work being seeming, seen as a mixed bag on various levels in terms of depending on what, what you're, criteria you would be using to critique it versus writing style versus the ideas that are coming across. Uh, that's okay. it's, it, he definitely um, seems to have tapped into some collective unconscious because people have just <laughs> taken all that mechanistic universe and the, the unknowable nature of things and run with it. Um, it, it. It's really interesting to see how all this has kind of blown up. I, I think, that, yeah, that you agree with that, definitely. That that's kind of like it taps into that vein of, you know, the, the fear of, you say, like a, a mummy or a vampire, that type of thing, versus the fear of the unknown. And then the almost the reader or viewer in instances of a movie or whatever is kind of, it's whatever, the, you know, the worst thing that they're able to come up with in their imagination is what's waiting for them, you know, out in the darkness and that type of thing. And tapping into that human, that collective fear of the unknown that everybody, you know, as opposed to something that's specific to oh, bugs or spiders or that type of thing that to certain right. people, that's not that scary. <laughs> right. And it's also just the realization of the fact that um, nobody's, you know, basically you're alone in the universe. We're a tiny speck in the universe. Right. And the universe doesn't care a whit about us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just here naked and open to whatever, you know, might come along uh, that's 
that's more powerful than us or that we don't understand the unknowable. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the basis of the, some of the horror that he, that he um, is attributed with. And then you have um, like the, most of his protagonists, if you can call them that come become a, probably mentally unbalanced by the end of each story. They've, you know, they've, uh, they just can't handle the knowledge that they've now uh, obtained. And yeah. So yeah, it's just the fear of that completely unknown and, and what you don't see, but what you can imagine. Right. Or like you're saying, as far as yet of these, you know, that we are alone other than these, for these forces that which either we're too insignificant for them to pay attention to us or they see us as just as prey. <laughs> as far as to be consumed versus having any deep interest in our doings on earth as far as that type of thing it's just like insignificant as far as that's concerned absolutely i think that hits more of the audio like you said as far as a uh, uh, particularly in modern times where we seem to have there's a, no real undiscovered well i mean there still are but you know to, to the layman really you know we've discovered everything you know every corner of the earth we know where everything is and all that type of thing so still tapping into that there's still these I think that are out there that you don't know anything about waiting for you in the darkness then speaks you know even more so now right. that for our parts of the country that oh humans don't go there or we've never civilized that area that now that we you know uh, more to an extent have civilized these not necessarily civilized explore these areas that it's still again these places where and again it's not even as far as the reaches of space so much of Lovecraft stuff also gets into the deep sea and that type of thing and all the various horrors waiting for you down there right. more, uh, terrestrial version really of say the cosmic horror that, that, that something deep deep down in the ocean is similarly waiting for you whether you if you choose to venture down there right I, I think that's that's interesting that you mentioned cosmic horror because that's a huge part of it but it's also there's also some um you know more like body horror as well Right. people doing things to themselves or ancient rituals to try to try to improve their situation and they end up um way worse off than they were before if not dead um you know the, the kind of terminal climax that i call it in Lovecraft, where um you know like the last paragraph is and I hear them on the steps. They're coming. God help me. They're coming. And then yeah, it scrawls off the page. Scrawled last that's, that's kind of the that's a, Tuesday is right. going to end well. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's kind of like the end. You know, the climax of the thing is the end. You're just done because the guy's probably dead or insane at that point. So yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. There's tons of stuff that we could um, that we can go into in future episodes and um, other things to keep out uh, keep watching out for are. Um, like new new movies and shows coming out like um um oh what is it uh, oh lovecraft country yeah that's right. uh, that's on the horizon i i think that's going to be an interesting take on the whole um issue of racism and lovecraft and what you know where that's going to go and I, i'm really looking forward to seeing that when it comes out i've read the, the novel um i don't know how closely it will follow that or not but it's it's pretty interesting yeah, I need to get around to reading the actual novel before the, uh, the HBO series airs so that it can similarly be able to judge, you know, whether or not they've uh, established or adapted that, you know, in a, in a faithful manner, uh, as well as the fact that being able, I've been meaning to get around to reading that as it was anyway. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything to add? 
Mark, did it, sir? Uh, I was just thinking about my first experience of seeing, um, of experiencing Lovecraft. Uh, I'd always heard that name. The movies like Reanimator and From Beyond had just come out. You know, they said the based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and I was just kind of curious who he was. And I never could find his works until like uh, one day I went to the um, to the bookstore, uh, the old Walden bookstore in the Greenwood Mall, and there was a whole line of books by him. They had like his best of works, you know, uh, one big volume, and then they had kind of some of his lesser known works um, in other books. And so I picked up the the best of, you know, the first time and read that and just absolutely fell in love with it. And uh, it kind of boggled my mind of his writing and all that, you know, his way with words just kind of amazing. But sometimes you kind of wondering, you know, where did he learn these words? You know, he had such a grasp on our arcane language. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And also his, his curious British spelling for words. And so he kind of like stuck with you. And so um, after that, I got very fascinated with Lovecraft. And then there was another movie that came out called The Unnameable. And so I have, uh, it's, it came about the right time for me because I was just reading all this stuff. And I have like, it's a, it's probably uh, not one of the greatest works I've ever seen of Lovecraft, but it's definitely, uh, uh, is an enjoyable movie. And I actually like the sequel as well. Oh, I had no idea there was a sequel. Yeah, they had, a, they had two of them, and um, they're both worth watching. So that was kind of my first experience of H.P. Lovecraft, and I thought I had read everything um, until recently when I picked up the biography of him and decided to read during this pandemic and found out there are a lot more stuff of his that I didn't know existed, stuff that he had um, ghost wrote for people or revisions that basically became him ghost writing it. So there's like a, a whole bunch of, of other works out there and little silly projects that he worked with other people. And uh, because of all the stuff he wrote with amateur journals and usually under assumed names, we may never know everything he wrote. Yeah, I know he's very, you know, that as far as what he wrote versus what was published under his name, there's a wide gap as far as that goes. I had no illusions that I'd ever read everything that he'd written just because of the yeah. fact that uh, again, there's so much things, so many of those, you know, that again, we may have written them in collaboration with someone else or under another name, that type of thing. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of stuff. And some some projects that he ghost wrote on, he was more involved with others. Some he seemed like he wasn't interested in the story at all and only made like minor changes. And others, he almost like completely rewrote everything. And, uh, and um, just to let you know, the stars are aligned and we'll need to wrap this up. And so I had to make discussion for this for next month, if the go God's allowed. 30 Minutes of H.P. Lovecraft is a creation in association with www.lovecraftpod.com and Logan Speculative Fiction Group with the help of the Logan County Public Library and the Great Old Ones. Until we meet again, may you avoid the wrath of the Cthulhu Princess. Mm -hmm.